We're going to be looking at the book of Esther today, which is in your Bibles. It is right before the book of Job, which is spelled Job, and Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. And so if you like go to the middle and then turn left, you'll get to the book of Esther. It's not very big, but it's an interesting book. As you're doing that, I just want to share two other quick announcements with you. Next week, we're having Teen Challenge here. Teen Challenge is a ministry that ministers to people who are facing addictions, drug, alcohol, otherwise, down in London area. And so their team is going to be coming up and sharing a little bit about what they do with us. And so two things with that. First of all, there will be a lunch after the service. There will also be a love offering taken after their message. And so just because I know some people like to be prepared for that, there will be a love offering taken up. So that's just a second offering after this service. The other thing I want to mention is last week at the end of our message, I invited you to go downstairs and to pick up one of these rocks and to write one or more thing on one or multiple rocks of how you have seen God's faithfulness in your life. And many of you did that, and I would love to be able to put more up on the wall this week. But what I really want to invite you to do is to take some time in the next few weeks to go around and to read some of these rocks. I was putting them up and reading them this week, and my faith was really encouraged by that, and I think yours will be as well. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we ask that you would open my mouth, loosen my tongue, help me to proclaim your word and your word only. I pray also that you, that you would loosen our ears and that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us. Thank you, Father, for the Bible. And we ask that you would help us to take and apply what we read into our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so today we're looking at the book of Esther. Before we actually get to the text of Esther, I want to introduce to you an idea that I heard from a pastor and author, John Ortberg. The idea is that every single one of us has a purpose in our lives. That's not a new idea by any means. And the thing is, most people kind of say, you know, I wish I knew my purpose in life, right? Well, I can tell you what your purpose in life is because it's actually in Scripture. When you read through Scripture we can find out that our purpose in life is to be in relationship with God. Our purpose in life is to worship and to obey and to love God. And so as Christians, we can be clear on that. For the rest of the world, they may not understand that that is why they were created, but it was. And so we don't have to worry about what our purpose is. We just need to worry about whether we're following our purpose or not. But the idea that John Ortberg shares is that there are times when we ignore our purpose. There are times that we completely ignore what we were created to do. And when we do that, we become focused on a shadow purpose or a shadow mission. And a shadow mission is the thing that tempts us to let our lives center around something that is dark or unworthy or self-centered. Our shadow mission is the thing that tempts you away from your call to worship and to obey God. And so if there is something that is tempting you or or leading you away from worshiping or obeying God, chances are there's a shadow mission there. And so while we think about that, I want you to kind of percolate and think to yourself, what is my shadow mission? What is the thing that tempts me away from worshiping and obeying God? While we do that, we're going to look at the book of Esther. 
And we're going to look at the book of Esther and see what some of the shadow missions are in this book. Now, the book of Esther is the story of the Israelite people who are living in captivity in Susa, the capital of Persia, around 470 B.C. And the book starts this way. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Midia, the princes and the nobles of the province, And all these people were present, and it lasted 180 days. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave another banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each goblet was different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Why in the world would the author of the book of Esther start his book this way? Like This is kind of an interesting way to start a story. We haven't even heard of this person named Esther yet. I think for two reasons. First of all, one of the ways that you can break down the book of Esther is by parties, by feasts. There are so many parties and feasts in this book, it's actually hard to count. In the first nine verses, there are three parties. The first one lasts for six months. That's a party. The second one is seven days for everyone. And then Queen Vashti also throws a much more subdued party for the women. The second reason I think that the author starts his book this way is because he wants to show us the shadow mission of King Xerxes. Xerxes is rich, he is powerful, he wants everyone to know it. His shadow mission is importance and control. It says that the Persian Empire stretched from India to Kush. His vast wealth was displayed for more than six months at feasts. The common people got goblets of wine that were gold, and each one was unique. King Xerxes' shadow mission was a mission of importance and control. That's what he wanted in his life. It continues. Now on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine... He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti. The queen has been partying and showing off all of his splendor, all of his possessions, and now he wants to show off his most valuable possession, Queen Vashti. Now, what part of her do you think that he wanted to show off? Was it her mind? Did he want her to come before all these people and do logic problems? 
Was it her personality? Did he want her to come and to show off her wisdom and her wit? No. He wanted her to come, wear her royal crown, dress up nice, and parade in front of everyone, for she was lovely to look at. But then something really interesting happens. Remember, this is like 470 BC, okay? Queen Vashti says no. And who would blame her? Seriously, king, you want her to come and parade herself in front of these men who have been having seven days of happy hour? I don't think so. Now, obviously, the king is enraged. He is a man of wealth. He is a man of power. He is a man of control. And yet he cannot even control his wife. She threatens his shadow mission. And so the king becomes burning with anger, and he looks to get revenge at his wife. He consults the lawmakers, because one of the things that you need to know about Xerxes is that he was never one to make decisions. Okay? So he consults with the lawmakers, and they agree that this is a big problem. Feminism has stuck its head out in a male-dominated society, and if Vashti can get away with saying no to her husband, then all the women in Persia will hear about this, and they will begin a feminist movement. And so they write a royal decree. And this is what it says in verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed... This cannot be taken back. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position, her queenship, to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of the vast realm, listen, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Friends, I cannot make this up. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, they write this law, but just like any man, King Xerxes gets lonely. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that he misses Queen Vashti. Again, not her brains, not her wit, her body. And so her, his attendants suggest an alternative. You should throw a beauty contest. Miss Persia, Miss Medes. And he thinks, obviously... Like, this is a fantastic idea. Get the most beautiful young virgins in each province and add them to the king's harem. And how many provinces were there? 127. That's a big harem. And the one who pleases the king most will become queen. Now, there happened to be in the citadel of Susa a Jewish young lady who was an orphan being raised by her uncle Mordecai, and that young lady's name was Esther. And she was quite beautiful. And so she was the one chosen. She won Miss Souza the award, and became part of the king's harem. And the king liked her best, and so she became queen. Now again, let's just take a minute. And think to ourselves, if the story ended that way, is this a happy ending for Esther? I mean, isn't that every teenage girl's dream to be a trophy wife for a middle-aged man who has 126 other women on the side? Maybe not. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we also hear just a little side story. 
we hear that Mordecai, Esther's uncle, discovers an assassination plot and saves the king's life. We're not going to talk about that, but it's going to be relevant in a few minutes, okay? So, Mordecai saves the king's life. In chapter 3, we're introduced to another man. Haman is his name, and Xerxes honors him more than any other man. He's Xerxes' right-hand man. And it says in verse 2 that all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down to Haman and paid him honor, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, Esther's uncle, would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, Haman was a man who also had a shadow mission. Haman's shadow mission was more. More power, more status, more honor, more stuff. But it was never enough. Maybe this is your shadow mission. To get more. Can I tell you that it won't satisfy you? You get a raise at work and it doesn't satisfy. You get a claim in the media, but it isn't enough. More never satisfies. Let me give you an illustration. Who is the one who is more satisfied? The one with a million dollars or the man with 12 kids? The man with 12 kids is the one who's more satisfied because he doesn't want more. <laughs> and so Haman's shadow mission is more. And because just one person won't give him what he wants, one person won't bow down to him, he's enraged. He is actually so furious at this one man that killing this one man wouldn't be enough. He, in fact, wants to wipe out this whole man's people group, the Jews. And so one day Haman goes up to King Xerxes and he bribes him to allow him to kill the Jews. And again, the king, who doesn't think for himself, says, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And so he sends for his royal secretaries, and Haman gets to write out this law. And it, it goes that on a single day, the people are able to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, and plunder their goods. Again, Haman wants more. This was a command that was written in the name of the king, and therefore it could not be repealed, could not be overturned. Now, there's a problem. There's a, a number of problems with this. One, of, of course, is the genocide that's about to happen. But one of the big problems is that nobody knows that the queen, the king's favorite, is a Jew. And so Mordecai, Esther's uncle, hears about this law and the fate of her people, and he tells her that the Jewish people are in jeopardy. The king has issued this decree, and Esther, you need to go and convince the king to revoke this irrevocable law. Because Esther, come on, you're the queen. But there's a problem. And the problem is that it seems like the king may not be as excited about Esther as he has been in the past. In fact, Esther hasn't been called, hasn't been summoned to the king in 30 days. This is his wife. He hasn't seen his wife in 30 days because he has 126 other girls on the side. And so 
Maybe Esther might not have the voice that she used to to persuade the king. And so Esther doesn't want to do this. The other issue is that there's a law. There's a law that you can't go before the king unless you're summoned. This is what Esther says. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they will be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their life. But again, 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So it's a death sentence for Esther to go to the king unsummoned. It's a death sentence to go to the king unsummoned, especially if you're going to tell him that you don't like how he's running his kingdom. Do you remember Queen Vashti? She said no to him, and now she's banished. So Esther doesn't want to do it. And most of us would say, I don't blame you, Esther. But Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't shrink back. Mordecai has earned his right to speak into her life, and he doesn't shrink back. He says, Esther, this is your shadow mission speaking. Your shadow mission is safety and comfort. And that's not okay. Mordecai challenges Esther's shadow mission. The fact is, we all have shadow missions, right? It's not just the bad guys in the story. Esther has a shadow mission. She wants safety. She wants comfort. Who would blame her? But Mordecai challenges this. This is what he says. He says, Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent in this time... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, Esther, but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, don't think that you're going to escape this. In fact, what if God has put you in your place of position, your place of power, For such a time as this. Powerful words. Now Esther's response to Mordecai. If if Mordecai's response was challenging. Esther's response to him. Is even more profound. She hears his challenge. This is what she says. She says okay go. Gather all the Jews who are in Susa. And fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day. I and my attendants will also fast. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You may remember last week, we talked a little bit about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were being thrown into a fiery furnace, and they say, King, we're not going to do what you ask us to do. Because we were going to remain faithful to our God. And our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. If I perish, I perish. So let's pause for a second here. What is your shadow mission? What is the thing that tempts you away from your call to worship and obey God? 
I can tell you mine, or at least one of mine. One of my shadow missions is people-pleasing. I want people to like me. I'm not comfortable rocking the boat. I want people to think highly of me. It's kind of a status thing for me. I want people to like me. I want people to say, Brian, Brian, he's a nice guy. To a fault. And often, I have to come face-to-face with this shadow mission, especially in ministry, because I can either make people like me, or I can encourage and challenge people in their faith. Sometimes they don't go hand-in-hand. See, the problem with shadow missions is that often they're not like 180 degrees away from what we're supposed to do. They're more like 5 or 10 degrees off course. You see, the fact is, as a Christian, as a pastor, but especially as a Christian, I should be a nice guy. I should be a guy that people think and say, hey, you know what, that's an upstanding guy. I like when he's around me. I should be a guy that earns the right to speak into people's lives. The fact is, in this culture, we need to earn our right to speak into people's lives. And so I want to do that. The problem with my shadow mission is that sometimes once I've earned the right to speak into their lives, then that shadow mission comes, gets in the way, and it says, yeah, but Brian, if you then do speak into their life, if you do share Jesus with them, if you do encourage them to read the Bible, if you do challenge them to pray, if you do... Tell them that the stuff of this world is just temporary. Then maybe they won't like you so much. And that's a constant battle for me. The shadow mission is something that haunts me. And if I'm not careful, I can go on the tangent of the shadow mission instead of worshiping and obeying God. How about you? Back to the story. On the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes. She gets all dolled up. And she stands in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting in his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. In other words, Esther, you're going to live for at least one more day. And so Esther approaches and touches the tip of the scepter. Then the king asks, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. Just so we're clear, this is kind of like a saying in Eastern royalty. Up to half of my kingdom. It really just means, Esther, what is it? I'm in a good mood and I'll probably grant your request. But if you actually ask me for half of my kingdom, my mood will change greatly. And so she says, if it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. And Esther replies, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet I prepare for them, and then I will answer the king's question. This beauty queen may not have been chosen as a queen for her smarts, 
but she wasn't dumb. She knew that this was a king who liked being important. And so she butters him up. Now that night, that night the king can't sleep. And so he tells his scholars, I can't sleep, read me a book. It kind of reminds me of my five-year-old. Now, again, kings don't write their own laws. They also don't read their own books. And so he says, come here, read me a story. Actually, read me my story. Because I'm the king. I'm an important guy. I like feeling important. I want you to read the story that's about me. Perfect book. And so they come and they, they read him the, the, the chronicles or the annals of the king. And the section of the book that they read to him is the section about Mordecai finding out about an assassination plot and saving the king's life. And as the king can't sleep, he's thinking about this and he says, have we done anything for this guy? And they say, no, we haven't. And so he calls in Haman. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Remember, Haman doesn't like Mordecai. Haman wants to kill Mordecai and all of his people. Haman has the shadow mission of more. He likes more honor, more grandeur. He thinks highly of himself. And so when the king asks, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman, if this was a play, he'd kind of do that, that little like whisper right, to the audience. He says, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Maybe you know people like Haman, eh? And so he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. If there was ever a moment of pride before the fall, this is it, folks. Haman says, this is what you're going to do to the man that, you're gonna, that you want to honor. And the king says, wonderful. The one I want to honor is Mordecai. Haman, you pull the horse. That night, the king and Haman go to the second banquet the queen Esther has requested. And the king finally asks again, what do you want, Esther? What do you need from me? And so she tells him that she is a Jew and she's about to die because of what Haman has instructed in the law. The king, enraged at the betrayal of Haman, has Haman executed in the same fashion that Haman was going to execute Mordecai. Now, unfortunately, the king cannot undo his law, but he allows them to rewrite another law, to, to write another law. And so they write another law allowing the Jewish people to assemble to protect themselves against those who would try to kill him. One of the really interesting things about the book of Esther is that God is never actually mentioned by name. In fact, when people were prayerfully trying to figure out what books of the Bible were going to be part of the Tanakh, which is now our Old Testament, that was one of the concerns about having Esther in it, because it doesn't actually mention God. And yet, through prayer, they agreed that, well, God is not 
explicitly mentioned, he is all through the story. It was faith in God that made Esther choose to courageously face up to a powerful king when her shadow mission would tell her to keep silent for self-preservation. It was faith in God that allowed Mordecai to receive the honor that was due Haman and for Haman to receive the punishment that was meant for Mordecai. It was God who raised up a young Jewish girl to be queen of Persia for such a time as this. It was faith in God that allowed the Jews to flourish in a foreign land of captivity. God is throughout this story. But it was each and everyone's choice whether to follow his call in their lives or to follow their selfish shadow mission. So how about you? What is your shadow mission? Once you understand what your shadow mission is, how can you focus your faith on God to follow his mission in your life and to ignore your shadow mission? Once you know what your shadow mission is, then you can look at it face to face and say, yeah, I'm a people pleaser, but today I choose to follow God. Yeah, I want more, but today I choose to take on the form of a servant. Yes, I want control and power and honor, but today God's calling me to submit to him. And each and every day, we look our shadow missions in the face and we say, look, I choose to follow God. The interesting thing is that the book of Esther isn't a whole lot different than us. Sure, most of you have not been crowned beauty queens of Persia. And yet we live in a foreign country, just like the Israelites did. No, you may have been born in Canada. Your passport might say Canadian on it, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then your citizenship is actually in heaven. You are part of the kingdom of God, and yet we live in a society and in a culture that is foreign to God's kingdom. So how do we flourish in a foreign culture when we follow and trust God? How do we ignore or put aside our shadow missions? in order to flourish in a foreign culture that God is calling us to trust him in and to follow him. Friends, it just might be that the next year of your life, you can say, perhaps it was for such a time as this that I was born. Perhaps it is for such a time as this that I am here in Bruce County. Perhaps it is for such a time as this that God has me at my work, in my school, on my street, with these friends. Perhaps it is such a time as this that God is calling us to put aside our shadow missions and to worship and obey Him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us Help us to worship and honor and obey only you. Father God, as we find ourselves in cultures and in societies that don't resemble your kingdom, I pray that you would help us to flourish for your namesake. That you would help us to lay aside those shadow missions that easily distract 
and help us to faithfully follow you for your glory. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We need you in our lives. We need your Holy Spirit guiding each and every action in our lives. And so, Father, right now we just pray that you would be number one in our lives. That you would take the throne of our life, that you would be the one that we would worship and obey. And that when those shadow missions come into our minds, when we're tempted with those alternative shadow missions, that we would just say, no, today I choose to worship and obey my God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.